0: how do we combat evil in our world welcome to kingdom of the lagos a christian program of critical thinking and adventure i'm pastor jay dylan proctor and you can follow me on twitter at jay dylan proctor i'm not alone here in the studio joining me is anthony alegria
1: yes and just to pick up a cool niche thing to do i'm going to do the watch check i'm wearing the timex expedition chronograph with an army green nato strap
0: yes and also with us is co-host Pastor Amanda Sparrow.
2: I'm so glad uh, you explained what a watch check is. I was like, what in the world are we doing here? Okay, but yes, so we're here.
0: (laughs) Yes, and I don't know what a watch check either, though. I do have a watch on. Um, I wear the little Lego watches. They're sort of niche. You can pick them up in bulk for a few dollars on eBay, and they're really cool and surprisingly heavy duty. Um, Not anything of the class of what Anthony wears, but anyways, Amanda, what are we going to be talking about today as we discuss combating evil?
2: All right, so this is Podcast 64. And also remember to like us on Facebook and subscribe to Kingdom of the Logos on YouTube. So in this program, we're going to talk about combating evil and how the League of Nations is coming together around rosaries. And I know like you hear the title League of Nations and it sounds a little bit like um, an, an evil kind of villain collaboration but it's not it's not from a comic book it's a real place a real thing and it actually is doing some great good so stay tuned for that we're also going to be building on our conversation about sebastian that is a saint we've uh, referred to in previous episodes uh he's a christian from the third century that went to great lengths to fight evil in the world around him
0: Yes, and thanks for joining us. It helps us out greatly when you share our content. I know there's a lot of you out here who watch here locally in the Tennessee area. Please just share our content, grabbing a link and sharing it with your friends and family. We'll do so much. And if you really like us, send us a comment. Send us your questions. We have one today that we're going to be answering um, in the very end of our program. This is 64A. That answer will be in 64B, so you'll have to hang around for that. But if you would like to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdomofthelogos. So Amanda's already introduced what we're going to be talking about is the theme of combating evil, but in the essence of staying lighthearted, let's open up today with a few articles that are fun. One is about a crow, which is employed by a theme park, and I'm going to let Amanda give an overview of this to us.
2: All right, so this is coming from, the article is coming from sky.com, Sky News. Um, so basically the kind of a synopsis of the article is that a theme park in France and I'm going to try to pronounce it, but I do not speak French, so I apologize. But it's Pou de Faux, we think, uh, is a park. It is a historical theme park, um, very popular in France. And they have started training crows to pick up cigarette butts and various trash um, in the park. And one of the president of the park says that the goal is not to clear up, because visitors do that uh, generally, but it is to help show people that even nature itself um wants to, to inspire people to keep clean. Uh, so that's just kind of the synopsis of the article.
0: Yeah, and you get the crow there. A lot again, people that have no doubt, last week or maybe it was week before last week, we were talking about a man who stole a shark using a baby stroller. I'm sure there's some animal rights activists that's gonna be like, oh no, they can't employ crows. But I actually think it's pretty cool. I would put this in the category of hot if we were playing hot, not or sanctified. <laughs> they have employed crows to help clean up in the theme park. Uh however I probably should not go there because I have a habit of destroying birds of of size and stature. Even today, as I was driving over to the church, uh, I hit a buzzard with my car. It hit right on the A-pillar and exploded, and blood and guts went all over the car. It was very theatrical. <laughs> just so couldn't
1: help himself. <laughs>
0: couldn't help myself. But a few months ago, the vehicle I drive is a mini Clubman. I hit a, a turkey in the windshield, and it just exploded everywhere. Today, I was trying to avoid that. So... I guess that is not a theme park for me because I'll take out some of their employees. And that's not one of the things that needs to be on your resume.
2: Do you think crows get um, workers' comp if they get hit by cars? Uh, Yeah, well, they they do get fed. So every time they pick up trash, they get get food and they get treats. So they are being treated well. That helps.
0: Yeah, and that is really cool. Uh, Again, crows are really intelligent. They're actually some of the most intelligent birds, I think. When they've done scores on birds, the crows have actually ranked the highest of all birds in intelligence. And I know they're capable of facial recognition. If you clip their tongue right, they can speak. And evidently, if you pay them in treats, you can get them to work for you. (laughs) Anthony, do you have anything to say about that?
1: I will say, back to the workers' comp thing, historically speaking, there are a ton of working animals who, like, once they've kind of, you know, hit the being let out into the pasture field have actually gotten to live pretty great lives as a result of that work, which is really interesting. Yeah, even
0: in Hollywood, this is one of the things, I know there's been a lot of scandals and I know everybody wants relief from culture, but in Hollywood, most animals have better contracts negotiated than do like children. Like the animals can only work for like a few minutes before they have to be given a treat. They have to be given like a break and stuff like that. It's crazy. Uh, Anyways, I was actually asking if Anthony had any comment because I may replace Anthony with a well-trained crow. (laughs)
2: There you go. There we so, go. Sit so down there, you have to train it to peck the right buttons in the right Yes, motor, it yes. has to
0: peck the right buttons. Just kidding, Anthony. You're, you're not going anywhere. We have you forever. All right. So the n- next thing we have to talk about is holy water that was contaminated. And this is an interesting one, which just sort of sheds light on the ambiguous and general turmoil that we find throughout creation.
2: All right. right. And so this also takes place um, in France. This article is from thesun.co.uk Uk. Um, and it's about uh, the Notre Dame. Uh, so congregants were going to the no- Notre Dame, and if you're familiar with Catholic tradition, they usually um, dip their fingers and... Um a font which is just a basin of water of holy water and then they crossed themselves well when this happened apparently some people started to complain that their faces were tingling and they were getting headaches and also some other people were complaining that there was a foul smell coming from the holy water so the priest or whoever was in charge called the authorities because they were afraid the water was poisoned the authorities did investigate and they didn't find any reason to believe that there was any kind of concern and the article is really kind of ambiguous does that mean like they didn't find something high enough to cause a concern or did they not find anything in the water it really doesn't say but regardless this is kind of some people were, were very worried that this was going the beginnings of a terrorist attack but like i said authorities couldn't find anything much more significant than the tingly faces and the headaches
0: yes yeah, so it's interesting again a little bit of a metaphor of things going on in the world there always there are times in life where things which are intended for holy purposes contamination can come Evil creeps in and it wants to destroy, it wants to be ambiguous, and it wants to to come in and move the world not towards something better. It doesn't want to move the world towards reason, but it wants to take creation back to its pre-created state of this nihilistic void of nothingness. And today we're going to be talking about evil. I know we had some interesting articles there at the beginning, but using this one on Holy Water, I want to segue and transition into a conversation about evil and how do we deal with this. So at the start of this conversation, I want to make a very important statement. And bear with me on this, because I know a lot of people think it's important to have good intentions, but yet we have phrases like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But there is an important distinction that I want to make. Good intentions are not enough in a world where there are evil people and evil forces at play. Good intentions are great, but they're not enough. One needs a strong moral compass telling them right from wrong more than we need good intentions. Because good intentions are something which is downstream. They are derived from our moral code. If we have a bad moral code, we may have good intentions, but our actions are going to turn out a different way than something actually good. This is especially true in a world that loves my truth and moral relativism. We live in a world where a lot of people follow what is basically the religion of Oprah. They want to have my truth. Go out and live your truth. The problem is, is that if everyone thinks their personal truth has as much authority as every other truth in the world, then good intentions are nothing more than words of consolation in the face of evil. If we don't actually have something transcendental that originates outside of ourselves helping us towards good, good intentions are not going to mean anything. If they only start from inside ourselves, then there's a big problem. When we look throughout history, we can look at some people who are obviously very bad, but yet when we examine their character and the motives behind them, we can see just how dangerous good intentions are when they originate out of bad moral codes. Stalin, he had his truth of the good intentions of battling class warfare. You know, it sounds good to battle class warfare. When you talk about the bourgeoisie having its rule over the proletariat, those people, they they want to hoard up all the resources. All of that is very compelling. But when we examine history, honestly, Stalin killed tens of millions of people or his ideology and what went on in Soviet Russia killed tens of millions of people. And we can't even figure out how many tens of millions of people were killed as a result of this because the morality behind those intentions was corrupt. Good intentions can still cause evil if the morality behind them is evil. Nazi Germany, it had its truth of eugenics and it was considered merciful within that ideology to kill Jews because they were inherently diseased. The truth that they had, their good intentions of eradicating people of disease was ultimately evil. In a world where social media mobs and social media movements have such extreme power, we must realize that good intentions are not enough. We are often tricked by the fact that movements start and they have a name associated with them and we like the intent of movements. We like the the hashtags and things which come in our world. But we have to step back and say, is the motives behind this and the morals of the people leading these movements capable of actually moving us towards a better place? Because we may find that we like the intent of a movement, but if we blind ourselves to the morality behind such intent, we may Find ourselves deficient in the end. This is the problem I have with a lot of the social media mobs because they're really easy to get into and there's no moral authority needed to get into them. People can just get online they can write something out they can do something whether it be cyberbullying, or they can think they're standing up for victims but they have no idea whether they're actually helping people or not because they don't actually have a good moral compass guiding them. There's no accountability there's no real justice only qualified justice. History has taught us over thousands of years that justice is best served blind. It is best served by an objective moral code which has transcendental authority over the people that are being examined. Justice is best served when it comes from something outside of the parties involved. But in our modern world, we find that many people hate this. They claim there are injustice in the world and they want to do something about that. And I do believe they have legitimate intentions to do something about this. However, instead of taking up the wisdom that justice needs to be more blind, they instead want to align justice with their personal and relative truth. And ultimately, when we look at history, that destroys civilizations. A great philosophy I have learned here recently in life is that when dealing with morality and when dealing with the theological questions we have in the world, take this wisdom. Stake your flag in strong orthodox morality. Do not stake your flag in gray area. If you stake your flag on solid morality, you will take that solid morality with you to the areas of gray in life. However, if you stake your flag in the gray areas in life, you will carry gray to where there are areas of no gray. In other words, if you start thinking about the outliers and the exceptions and say, oh, well, there's more gray area here you'll start taking that moral gray area to places where, well, we can actually clearly tell the difference between good and bad. But if you start your thinking and say, what does it mean to be Christ-like? What does it mean to have the very will of God come and inspire me and teach me every day? If we start thinking on the solid ground of tradition, evidence, and orthodoxy, then we will be well prepared to deal with the unusual circumstances of life. So, before we read about this League of Nations and what they're doing with the rosary, I just wanted to throw this over to Amanda and see if you have any thoughts on that monologue I just shared there before we move along.
2: Well, I think uh, as you were talking, I was reminded of the story um, early on in Acts where I think it was Peter and John are taken before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is upset at them because they keep proclaiming this message of, of Christ and Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus being resurrected. And so they they remove peter and uh, john from their presence and they're talking within themselves and one of the leaders stands up and he's regarded for his wisdom and he says remember a couple years ago there someone came up and they tried to revolt he died and his disciples ran away and then this other guy came up and he tried to start a revolt and again he died and his followers ran away now there's this group following this jesus of nazareth he said this is if it's not from god it's going to dissipate and we can see that in the movements and the social movements today yes in our world there are some awful things going on and yes there are movements out there that are trying to combat the evils of our world so by no means are we trying to say that these movements themselves are evil or unnecessary but they seem to lack a solid foundation so they can only do so much and so then uh the the great leader in the san Adrian concludes with if these disciples though are of god you will find yourself fighting against god and you will find yourself on the wrong side. And so this is the difference. This is where we're trying to move, right? It's saying good movements, secular people who are trying to do good things, they're not inherently evil. They're not like the evil around them, but they're not going to make the difference in the world that they could make, that can be made. And actually, sometimes they can actually be roped in to evil things because they don't have a solid foundation. And what is that solid foundation? What does that have to be if it's going to be successful in the world of actually changing hearts and minds, not just changing policies? It's gonna only happen if that foundation is Christ.
0: Couldn't have stated it better myself. So let's go into this with the Holy League of Nations. Amanda, if you would share with us a little bit about this.
2: All right, so again holy league of nations it sounds creepy and actually the website is from the and um if you're like me i saw all those words it was like woo, red flags but this is again actually a very great group that is moving towards a place of organizing people kind of like think of um prayer at the pole or, or prayer day that happens in schools but this is establishing it on a much broader scale and it is using the infrastructure of the catholic church Um, And so, they are calling like this, it's a rosary day. And if you're unfamiliar with what a rosary is, it's a necklace or sometimes they wear it like a bracelet around their arms and it has beads on it. And you follow the beads to help you remember how to pray. You usually do Our Fathers and Hail Marys and things like that. And then you conclude um, with a big prayer. But anyways, it's just, it's a tool to be used to help you to go through a time of prayer and reflection. And so, they're using this uh, rosary day to call people to prayer. And it's happening internationally. That's why it's called a League of Nations. It started in Poland. And then this helped influence some other things where people actually gathered around the borders of Poland to pray for the country as a whole. And if you can just think, I mean, Poland's not a giant country, but it's a good-sized country. And to get people to just in fields and also along the coast and other places to pray um, for their country. And this then eventually led to some other things where they had a service where they crowned Christ King of Poland, um, which is phenomenal um, in our world, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later in our program. But this is this is what the League of Na- the um, Holy League of Nations is, is is talking about.
0: Yeah, and stick around for episode 64B, where we're going to talk about that. I know for time purposes, we're trying not to take too much of your time, but we do appreciate you joining us. We're going to talk about. Is it hot not to sanctified to crown Christ King as a nation here in the modern world? It's a lot of people who say government and politics don't need to mess, but I think there's something powerful in that. We'll talk about that. But let's go back to the rosary a bit. I know a lot of people, they say, well, how do we defeat evil? And does a nation getting really excited about prayer, does that do anything? Well, one of the things that the rosary was designed for, and the rosary is really actually a prayer. I don't want to get too much into the Catholicism of it. A lot of people look at you and say, oh, look at y'all over there wearing clergy college, You're talking about rosaries. Y'all just want to be Catholics. Look, there's issues with that. We are Church of the Nazarene proudly. We're very proud Wesleyan holiness people. But the actual history of what these are, and if anybody that's in our audience would actually like one, we make some. We're actually thinking about having these as something that we send to people who subscribe and support the the program. The rosary starts off as prayer beads, and it begins in what is early Christian church, a little bit before Catholicism is Catholicism, sort of the general church that exists early on. And when people would be converted into the faith, they wanted the people who couldn't read and write, the people who may have been Gentiles by birth, to have something on their body to remind them everywhere you go, God is king in your life. In other words, you don't go be a pagan on every other day of the week when you're not at church, you don't go to the next temple. When you're going out, you're working in the fields. When you're going home, you are a Christian, and you should be thinking about that. So they made these beads that they could give people, and you would wear it on you. Maybe you'd have it in a pocket or a bag or something. And whenever your hands come across that, you'd be reminded, oh, I'm a Christian. God is the king of my life. I don't need to be thinking about the the pagans in the world. but, But Jesus is my savior. And when you would have those, you would take and you would run your hand around the beads. And it would take a little bit of time to do a prayer where you go from bead to bead to bead. And yes, it's involved into the the modern form where there's Hail Marys and stuff in there. I think, again, there's some serious issues with that. However, I can respect its function as saying something that you keep on your person. You feel it. You're reminded, oh, I need to be spending time in prayer. And you've got to spend a little bit of time to go around that. So send us your thoughts on that. Right now, we're going to go out to our resident anchorite, Athanasius, and we're going to see what he has to say about St. Sebastian. And then we'll come back to talk about Sebastian.
2: And thank you for joining us outside. We're here with our resident anchorite, Athanasius. Hey, how are you doing? It's been a while since we've seen you. Oh, okay, interesting. I guess not much goes on in the life of an anchorite. But anyways, Athanasius, I think you have a scroll for us. We're, we're learning, wanting to learn a little bit more about Sebastian. Do you have anything for us? No, I think you had something for us. Oh, okay. There it is. Thank you. Ooh, it's on a pretty purple. Thank you so much, Athanasius, and we'll continue to learn about Sebastian and talk with you more. Thank you. How do we deal with evil in our world? This question is especially difficult when evil is not perpetrated by obvious villains, but instead by cultures built on unrighteous morality. Sebastian was a young man living in the 3rd century in Rome, a culture of mobs that used the power of the state to brutally torture and execute Christians. The Roman culture would entertain itself with the suffering of the church and justify its evil with unreasonable allegations against the followers of Christ. Sebastian was not just any youth. He was a Christian convicted to combat the evil in the world around him. Sebastian's response to Rome might surprise you. In order to combat the evils of Rome, he joined the Roman army. As a Roman soldier, he could work undercover to assist Christians being persecuted by the Roman government. Sebastian had a success in both his undercover work and as a Roman soldier. Moreover, as a soldier, he became a favorite of Emperor Diocletian and became a member of the Emperor's Praetorian Guard an elite unit that served as bodyguards for the emperor. As part of the Praetorian Guard, Sebastian had access to many elites in society and was able to minister to many, teaching them the gospel of Christ. Furthermore, Sebastian's status granted him reliable information about those arrested for their faith. This information allowed him to minister to the families of the suffering. For a while, Sebastian was able to minister in secret, leading many people to Christ. However, after converting a local prefect, Sebastian was reported to Emperor Diocletian in 286. With Sebastian revealed as a Christian, the emperor ordered Sebastian to be used as target practice by archers. Sebastian was tied to a stake in a practice field, and he was shot so many times by archers that his body was described as being as full of arrows as an urchin. After being used for target practice, he was left for dead. A Christian widow named Irene, also known as St. Irene of Rome, came to retrieve Sebastian's body. Irene's husband had also been a Christian serving in the Roman military, though he had been martyred for his faith. As Irene was taking Sebastian's body down from the stake, she discovered that he was still alive, so she took him home and nursed him back to health. Two years later, and after recovering his health, Sebastian took it upon himself to confront the emperor personally. He had been a favorite of Emperor Diocletian prior to being discovered as a Christian. Utilizing a stairway, Sebastian positioned himself to surprise and confront Diocletian for his brutal persecution of Christians. When he emerged, the emperor was shocked that Sebastian was alive. However, he was not moved by Sebastian's appeal, and after regaining his composure, Emperor Diocletian ordered the execution of Sebastian for a second time. This time, clubs were used to beat Sebastian to death, and his body was thrown into a sewer. The year was 288. A Christian named Lucina recovered his body and she took it deep within the catacombs beneath Rome to bury it.
0: Sebastian really is an interesting person from church history. As we go back in, we, we look at his history, we see that he really wanted to combat the evil of the world, and he did this with personal responsibility. I myself am going to go out on a limb. Again, taking a huge risk that ultimately led to his execution twice, the only second, successfully the second time around. And there really is some inspiration we can take from that. Amanda, what are your thoughts? I know you had read through and shared with us the story of St. Sebastian. What do you think about this level of combating evil and the moral code it takes to be able to do something like this?
2: Well, I had heard the story of Sebastian before, but I think either, either I remembered it wrong or maybe I had heard just one of the, the, the stories around him where he goes back a second time and it was like he just kind of goes back to like a random, um, in the story I had heard or that I remember, he goes back kind of just like to a random Roman leader. Like it just seems like, ah, oh, there's a Roman person I can go yell at. Um, but in this story and, and this telling of it, it, it does. There's, there's this, this intentionality of not just going to some Roman leader, but the emperor <laughs> like, I mean, you had to really think that, well, he really had to think that through of, I'm not just going to confront somebody. I'm going to confront the emperor who is leading this and who tried to kill me two years ago. And not only am I just going to, like, show up, I'm going to hide in his pathway so I know for sure I can talk to him about it. Um, it just the, the level of commitment there is so phenomenal because, again, Like, he had to have known he's not getting out of there alive. Like, there was a slim chance Diocletian would be like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to stop persecuting Christians.
0: Diocletian is known for being pretty nasty historically. He definitely does a lot of, of killing of Christians. And a lot of times people in our world, they talk about oppression, and it's always some sort of soft oppression that you can't really prove or disprove. In this case, it was brutal torturing of people for entertainment. They would do horrific things to people in the amphitheater. And just amazing stories of integrity that Christians would have when they were said, make, make the pagan sacrifice or go to the amphitheater. Crazy levels of faith that these people had. But as we look at Sebastian, he actually knew Diocletian personally. He was part of the Praetorian Guard, which means he was one of the elite bodyguards to the emperor. So it wasn't like it was some random Roman he was going back to. It was actually someone that he knew quite well. He would have actually had to have some sort of favor with Diocletian to even be in the Praetorian Guard. So when Diocletian has him killed the first time, it's sort of out of rage of this person who I've had so close to me. He goes out and he's been converting Christians. And that's ultimately how Sebastian gets found out is he's converting a, a prefect who is high up in Rome and word gets around to the, the emperor that Sebastian's this Christian. He's been working underground right next to the emperor's nose, literally he's the bodyguard of the emperor. And he sends him out to be target practice. When Sebastian goes back, it's not just like somebody who's wanting to go do a stand on the street protest. It's actually somebody who personally knew the emperor going back to confront him over the evil that he's carrying out. And there is something pretty awesome about that because Amanda's right. He got killed the first time he was doing this just unsuccessfully. And the second time he, he would have had to know this would be his end. Anyways, we'll end it there. Thank you for watching again. If you would like to do anything for us, send us your questions, comments, share our content. That will help us out tremendously. Check out our YouTube channel. It's a lot easier to look up videos there. And that's Kingdom of the Logos there on YouTube. And subscribe and click the little bell and it'll help us out a lot. The morals of evil. Can evil even have a moral code? This is a devotional from people who know what EDC means. And now let's take an examination of the exorcism in Mark chapter 1 to examine a very diabolical topic. So we're going to start in Mark 1 verse 21, and I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Of course, this is Jesus who is teaching here. The motive of evil is quite interesting. It is clear that evil wants to cause destruction, and not just any destruction, but destruction without reason, unwarranted destruction in the world that is coming without any due course. It wants to move creation back to the void that was there before creation, before God began speaking and putting order and reason and rationality to the world around us. There was a void, and evil wants to move us back to that void. In order for us to understand the morals of evil, we need to identify some crucial distinctions. Recognizing and acknowledging God is not the same thing as following God and pursuing his will. That's right. Recognizing and acknowledging God is not the same thing as following the will of God. Even demons recognize that Jesus is the Christ. They recognize that he is the son of God, but they do not follow his morals. They do not follow the teachings of Jesus because they are fixated on destruction. They have an evil moral code in their lives. The second distinction I want to make is that doing something because of compulsion is not the same thing as doing something because of virtue. One could come in and make the arguments that these demons, they recognized Jesus. They recognized him for who he truly was. They had no misunderstandings of Jesus's identity. Furthermore, when he gave them a commandment, they obeyed it. Are the demons not followers of Jesus? Well, the answer is very obviously no. The demons are not followers of Jesus, no matter what narrative you construct around them. They are doers of evil. They only release the man because they were forced to by the power of Jesus. People are not being virtuous when they are carrying out actions that they are forced to, even if those actions result in good. It was certainly good for the man to be released from the unclean spirits, But the demons were certainly not doers of good. If we examine an evil moral code, we will understand that the intentions of people and sometimes unclean spirits matters a lot less than the moral architecture that is in the lives of the people acting. The demons, their entire morality was framed around destruction. This is why when Jesus came, they asked if he was coming to destroy them. Because their concept of destruction It permeates through all of their life. Destruction is a major concern for demons. Their evil moral code ultimately depends on it. The virtues we have in our lives are very important. I want us to examine our own character and say, what can we do to make sure that we have solid moral architecture in our lives? And when I say solid moral architecture, I don't mean that we just Pick a virtue here that we like and one there, but that we are well-rounded in what it means to be transformed by God and living a Christ-like life. Christ-likeness is not something we pick up on random circumstance, but instead is something that we should have all throughout our lives. When we are faced with the many complex issues in life, it's not enough for us to have good intentions, but instead it is necessary for us to have good morals and good virtues. And if we truly want to have good morals and virtues in life, then we need to have Christ in us, shaping us day by day, with the Holy Spirit convicting us towards the will of God and growing more and more in holiness. Church growth is so hard. Everyone wants to go to that chapel a few towns over because it's got those fancy relics. Hmm, well,
1: if we can't really find any of our own, we could always steal those.
0: What, steal the relics?
1: Well, I'm a young man now, and if you send me over, as I have grown in age, I will also grow in rank. And at that point in time, I can steal the relics and bring
0: them to this place. Hmm, that does sound pretty tempting. If we steal the relics, then people will come and visit us. I like this. This sounds like.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, we don't have to steal relics to overcome the challenges of church growth. Remember to support your local church, and thank you for joining us online at Kingdom of the Logos. So, um, this is kind of in response to someone private messaged and asked the question: "Is believing the same as having faith?" And after hearing our devotional and our continual conversation about combating evil. I think this becomes really really relevant for us to answer um, in the midst of all this information we're being presented. So is believing the same as having faith? My initial reaction is no. And we can see this in the story of, of Mark. Uh, obviously, again, the, the demons believe. They have some kind of understanding. Uh, but they're not willing um, to kind of take on, to commit. Uh, to the structure of faith, um, to understand not just who Christ is, but then who Christ calls all creation to be. Um, so we can see these clear distinctions uh, that are happening. And it's kind of easy to pick then on the demons because they're demons. What else are they going to do, right? Um, I mean, yeah, <laughs> the demons are going to be do. demons. Yeah, they're they're going to be destructive, right? Um, I'm not sure if our, I don't know, the understanding of demonology allows us to say demons can be repentive, But, so, let's move away from the demons and talk about ourselves. Um, There are many people um, around our world that kind of assent, cognitively assent, to this idea of of, of a higher being or a higher order of things. And and they have some kind of idea that that they need to live good and virtuous lives. Um, But they then disconnect from a broader scheme of things in which they need to dedicate their lives to this pursuit of holiness. And of course, even a pursuit of holiness, even in Christendom, is ultimately empty if it is not connected to the life and power of the triune God. Um, so I'll open this up to Anthony and to pa- and to Dylan as well. And what are your guys' response to this question?
1: Anthony? So um, I would probably take just a more etymological approach, I think is how I would pronounce Mm -hmm. that. But anyways, um, so one other word that's kind of like this is confession. And, you know, today all we have left of confession is basically like admitting something. But in the Greek, originally, it also means to live in accordance with. So if I were to confess confess Christ, I would not only be admitting that Christ is my Savior and Messiah, but also I'd be living in accordance with Christ's likeness And I feel like... Faith is a lot like that, especially whenever you consider, for instance, um, the use of faith, like remaining faithful to your wife, wife, or remaining faithful, faithful to God. That is an instance where um, you are maintaining your belief, but you're also living in accordance with the um, respective ethics for both. So.
0: Yeah. Like you can recognize something. For instance, the demons recognize who Jesus is, but they don't live in a way that matches Jesus's behavior. They're not living in accordance with that. So my answer would be no. Believing is not the same thing as faith. Though a lot of people get hung up on the words and they'll say, oh, I can create this sort of rhetoric where the same thing, the sentiment of the two are a little bit different. You can acknowledge who God is. You can acknowledge who Jesus is and you can like the demons. It wasn't just that they acknowledge it. They absolutely knew it there was no doubt with their minds about this but at the same time they had absolutely no persuasion to do anything godly in their lives as long as they had free will unless jesus comes and commands them to release somebody they're not going to do it they believe but they certainly have no faith they have no disposition to do anything better all right so that's what we have there now we're going to play hot not or sanctified uh, just for two items today. So how this works is we ask the question, is this hot, not, sanctified about an item either from church history or just general culture around us? And what we mean when we say hot is that is a positive theological inspiration. If we say not, well, then it's not. And if we say it's sanctified, then we're not saying the item is sanctified, but we're saying only God's sanctified judgment can decide if this is good theological inspiration for us or not. And as we get into this, I'm tempted to ask the question, about anchorites again we had athanasius share with us about sebastian i'm thinking maybe we should ask hot Not, or sanctified should people send us bricks and <laughs> if they send us bricks we can actually take anthony and turn anthony into a full-time anchorite now um and we can just stick a computer in there and a small window he can watch church we can maybe let him speak occasionally and he can stick run. a microphone
2: in there yeah we can yeah
0: um finish your thoughts on that we'll just brick him up in the corner he's in now and just let him be there permanently I think that would be good. But in a serious note, let's talk about uh, making Christ king in modern society. So in the podcast 64a, which is the first half of this, again, we kind of divide them up a little bit for the video purposes. We were talking about the League of Nations who had this really profound statement where they come out and they said, we're going to make Christ king of Poland. And there were some others who were in the UK and a few other places who kind of wanted to follow in that footsteps and say, we want Christ to be the king of our nation as well. Well, what do we think about this, gang? Is this hot, not, or sanctified? And again, those of you in the audience, send us your questions and comments and whether you think it's hot, not, or sanctified. If we were to, in our culture, say Christ is the king, what would that do? Because there really are multiple sides of this. Some people would come in and say, oh, you don't want church involved in government. You don't want government involved in church, certainly. And then there'll be other people who just say, oh, it's just a symbolic thing. It's kind of hollow. What do we think about this? Amanda?
2: Well, like I said, we're referencing an article about the the Holy League of Nations. And in that article, it talked about how even the king, not the king, I apologize, uh, the leader in Poland was part of that service. Um, So it's it's talking very much a different movement, I think, than like a hollow, just kind of symbolic thing. There's actually something happening here where people are recognizing their need to establish some priorities. Um, For this statement... I don't want to say sanctify because I don't want it to sound like a cop-out, but I do recognize there's a lot of nuances in these words that we're using and different biases that are going to come to the, to the question. So I don't know, somewhere halfway between hot and sanctified is kind of my response, because here's the thing. Again, we have to hear this not as Americans that are like, ah, we need separation of church and state. Um, because of our own history and biases um, that kind of condition our response, but really understanding what this question is asking us. And I think it helps to put this in terms against uh, the coronation of Charlemagne, which was a huge turning point in church history, where the church coordinated a political king. Now, for a long time, the church and the state and political governments had kind of been in bed together, but this solidified this idea of the church and the state having this power struggle of how to control people. So if that's how we're thinking of this, obviously we're going to kind of be in a bad place of wanting to make Christ king because then we're really kind of almost saying the church needs to be king, right? We need a theocracy to tell us what to do. And if we ever look at theocracies in our world, they never turn out good. Um, But if we're actually saying what we're saying in the statement that Christ is king, um, that the leading and the guiding and our hope is not in structures of political powers, which change every day, um, but actually the faithfulness and the fidelity of Christ, um, then, then we have, I think, a drastically different culture that's going to come from that.
0: Well, just to build off your statement, theocracies don't work. And one of the reasons why is they're never really actually a theocracy. They're always whatever person is in power. It's their disposition. It's their truth, not the truth of God, which manifests. Right. Um
2: and I, I don't think we can separate that very easily. No, we can't. We, we look at things like um, the, the, the the religious governments that are happening in the Middle East and how evil and tyrannical they are. We look at things like the Crusades and when the, the Roman popes were in such power back in the Middle Ages. Well, even
0: when you look at indulgences, they were trying yeah. to hold the existential fate of people. And it, again, it's because people put their own disposition in front of the transcendental, and that sort of means the overarching truth of God. So, Anthony, what do you think before I send my thoughts on this?
1: I think that um, historically, whenever you look at countries that put a very large amount of respect on uh, the Christian God, for instance, like the Byzantine Empire, which lasted for over a thousand years. I mean, that's amazing in itself. Um, And then the United States, of course, also huge amount of respect towards uh, Judeo-Christian values. And I think that in regards to, you know, we're going to imitate this model, Jesus Christ's kingdom, I think that that is a very, very um, good road for them to take.
0: Yeah, and when we look historically, whenever people, not necessarily nations because nations is Nation states can't really have the consciousness and moral code that an individual can. You can't have responsibility as a group like you can as an individual. Whenever individuals understand that God is the king of their life, good things happen. That's why the idea of having like a a rosary or prayer bead, we we talked about that in 64a. That's a good thing because it reminds you where you're at throughout the day. My answer to this question is hot with a qualification. (laughs) And I know I actually wrote this question, so I I should have phrased it better. But no, I shouldn't have. if the individuals in that country can live their life where they truly see Christ as King, then I say hot. But if it's just a a cheap political gesture, then I would say not. But if people can actually live with that, and I don't mean people like the society aggregation of people, but actually the individuals there in Poland, if they can live with that, then I would say hot.
2: Well, and I think um, so. At Trinity, we're doing a study that was produced through uh, Trevecca students, religion students, and also. Um, film majors to they went to the holy lands and they did this thing about uh, your kingdom come and it's been a major theme i think in our church because we're gonna we're, we're we're struggling with this issue of who actually is king in our lives And what does that mean then when we do things like go to a a voting booth and and we have to decide who becomes the leader of of our our country and how do we live in a heavenly kingdom but also be responsible human beings under earthly structures? So this is a huge debate and struggle for many Christians. And I think like what Pastor Dylan is is really touching on is saying, who are you trusting? Who are you relying on? And, and if Christ is king, you're going to live your life very differently if he's truly king, not just, you know, so you can manipulate that to manipulate others in your political field, regardless of which party you align yourself with. Um, but if it's really, if he is really king, then there's going to be influence into everything else is going to trickle out of that versus starting in a different place.
0: Absolutely. And spiritual revival is far more important than political revival will ever be. You look at history, it's absolutely true. I'm reminded of the Visigothic kingdom. And I know we talked about Isidore of Seville. Go out, check it out. Again, our YouTube channel has all the stuff easily churchable. Um, we talked about Isidore of Seville and his older brother. They're bishops there in Seville and a part of, again, what is now modern Spain and a little bit of France. We keep talking about France. We've got to move away from France. Good, <laughs> good, good heavens, people. Um, but one of the things that happened is when those people, and even as they were kind of heretics, they were... Kind of a little bit of Aryan before Isidore kind of eradicates that. The people who understood that God was king, these were the first people to create a legal system that said no matter what ethnicity you are, you have the same rights. In other words, the same laws are part of everyone. And this came because these were people who understood Christ is the Messiah. Yeah, they were Aryan heretics. They didn't understand the divinity of Christ, but they didn't understand that Christ was the origin of, of transformation. And they said, as individuals, we can be transformed and our identity is in Christ. And good things come when people start thinking like that. Politics is downstream from culture and culture is downstream for the morals we have as individuals. And if we have a life lived where we understand Christ is king, good things are going to happen. Well, let's move along to the next thing we're going to talk about. This will be the last conversation we have today. Again, remember to like us on Facebook and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Again, Kingdom of the Logos. Our podcast is free on iTunes, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and a lot of other places where you get your RSS feed podcast. We're on Instagram and also Tumblr. You can donate at Patreon.com. So that's Kingdom of the Lagos. Our last question is about gargoyles. And it's probably my favorite question of the day. This whole program was designed to be around gargoyles, and how is it that it's the last thing? Just <laughs> sort of a, a small tag on the end of fighting evil um, gargoyles. So, Hot Not a Sanctified Gang, having gargoyles on your building. And of course, gargoyles are interesting things. We'll put out a full podcast on them sometime in the future. Gargoyles are something which look a bit grotesque. There is such a thing as a grotesque. They're, different from a gargoyle but gargoyles are these sort of hideous monsters which are actually designed to fight off evil they the word gargoyle comes from a french word i know france is coming back up again um, Gargouille, which is a word for throat gargoyles used to be sort of hollowed out fixtures on buildings that water would come and they would have the water come through the gargoyle and it would spew it out and it would actually protect the, wa- the building from water damage but also it was meant to ward off evil spirits like demons gargoyles are things which fight evil so what do we think about having gargoyles on your buildings? Just cheap symbolism? Is it getting too much into the divine things, which aren't really divine, getting in that sort of weird place of spiritual warfare, which kind of takes people out of touch with reality? What do you think, Amanda? Hot, not, or sanctified gargoyles?
2: I think, hmm, I'm going to say hot, but again, with a little bit of a qualifier in the sense of not necessarily purely a structure that like the water spout or like a creepy monster on the side of your building. It doesn't have to be that. But having these um, means, these um, tools, uh, to combat evil, I think is what, what, what makes this hot, right um, it, it, like form follows function. the function is we've got to, we have evil in our world, we need to combat it, or just very practical things. we might have water damage, we need a way to get the water off the roof. Um, how are we going to do that? Ah, this is how we 're going to do it, we now have a tool to do that, a forum that promotes this idea of combating evil um, so that that definitely I think is very hot is to look at the, the things we have around us and how can we construct them? Um, into being ways that we can use them um, to combat evil.
0: In a moment, I'm going to ask Amanda if there are gargoyles at Trinity. But before I do, I've got to get Anthony's answer to this. Anthony?
1: I would say architecturally, definitely hot. I think it's a really awesome touch. It's just cool. And although theologically, I might say not, I'm kind of hesitant to say not because there is some good stuff that you can get from that because whenever you look at a gargoyle, you don't exactly think that that thing is going to be nice to you and you don't think you, you know that's not what you think but it is harsh and ferocious and that is something that at times what you have to be whenever you're combating evil so that part i like that moral of it a lot but do, theologically i'm not sure
0: do we think that sebastian looked like a gargoyle <laughs> after being shot with arrows so many times that he looked like an urchin he becomes the patron saint of archers, which is almost like <laughs> insult to injury. Like he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't known he wasn't for archery in his effectively
2: life. Effectively killed by archers, and he becomes the patron. saint. I know
0: it's like the mockery of his suffering. Um, but actually, that's how a lot of venerated saints are. But. um I'm actually going to say hot to this, and I'm going to divide this up into both sections. I'm going to disagree with others a little bit, add a little bit of debate, um, because disagreement comes out of love and compassion for one another and the truth. I say hot architecturally because, one, water on your building is just straight up evil. When I was younger, <laughs> I worked for USS here in the Ashland City, Pleasant View area, doing foundation repair. Some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life. It's brutal. Um People that have done it and tobacco say it's up there with working tobacco. It's, it's, mm. with a jackhammer on concrete all day in the beating sun, it will do things to your body that you just hope and pray never happens to your worst enemies. But anyways, back to the gargoyles thing. So what they do architecturally is great. And I think they're immaculate in their design. I think that's fantastic. I like rigorous, um, well thought out designs, not things that just people crudely put together. But also theologically, Again, our moral code is more important than our intentions. And our intentions, they're downstream for our moral code. But the moral code that says we're going to put a monster on the building that's not actually an evil monster, but it's just ugly, even though it's also kind of beautiful. It's just sort of macabre in its design. It's there to remind people that there is something looking out for you, something that's kind of monstrous itself, that it is going to go and fight off the forces of evil. It comes from a moral architecture that says, even our buildings want to remind you that there is something to fight the evil. You need to know that we are thinking about fighting evil and we're even putting that into our architecture. It's literally a way of communicating the fighting of evil in your architecture. And I think that's really good. I like the moral intentions that, or the morality that come behind the intentions. So I'm going to say hot all the way around. Though I will add a qualifier like Amanda did. I think they need the any education. You don't need to just put up a gargoyle and expect (laughs) people to know. I mean, that's just unreasonable. Um, We've got to educate people better. And I think it's good to have gargoyles and the whole high church architecture that comes with it. It's gorgeous. It's stunning. It communicates something amazing to people. A lot of times people say, oh, who wants to go to this place which makes you feel small and ugly when you go to these beautiful, massive buildings? But they're not meant to do that at all. They're meant to take you there and say, look, you may be small and ugly compared to this giant building. (laughs) We all are. But when you get there... You can participate in the beauty of the kingdom of God. It is elevating you. It's something which doesn't mock you. Instead, it, it takes you into it and says you can be relieved from the world. You are now being a part of something which is absolutely amazing. And what is communicated by that architecture is amazing.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, you're part of it. And it just so happens to be better than anything else that's around. So, Well,
0: gang, any final thoughts as we wrap up our program? Oh, wait, oh. we have one more question. Amanda, oh, does yes. does Trinity have gargoyles? And we'll end there. <laughs> okay,
2: so currently at Trinity, there aren't any gargoyles. And I'm not even sure there really were ever gargoyles, but maybe there were some elements, some very high church elements at, in the old building before the fire. Anyways, the reason kind of this question comes up is because there was there's a story of a lady that comes in and she says that the gargoyles are chasing her. And in doing so, she kind of inadvertently confesses because you know, I think she thought the gargoyles were evil things chasing people, but actually, you know, they're, they're good things that chase evil. And so she was, she was actually confessing her own sins there. Um, and she actually was doing some, some pretty bad things, but anyways, yeah. So there, there, there may be, um, some, some gargoyles. And I, I think this, this is why it is important to have these, whether they are very physical architectural pieces, or they're just structures in our lives, we have to have ways to combat evil. And I think they need to be such that people can see them, they know them, and they can say, hey, look, that person or that building or that community is acting different than the rest of the world. They're combating evil. Um, One, they're combating evil, and two, they're combating evil in a drastically different way than all the different movements, all the different political um, parties. They're doing something different that calls people towards transformation and really doing something better
0: absolutely. And we do need those moral architectures in our lives. And again, I don't say moral foundations. I'm also not someone who gets up on hung up on language. If you say moral foundations, but architecture is something which doesn't just start at the base, but it has the base included. And then it stems up. You have to walk around it. You have to maneuver it. We need things in our life, whether they be physical gargoyles or we need moral gargoyles in our lives to fight the evil. And with that, we'll wrap up our program. Thanks for watching and have a blessed day.